throughout the letter, there are these passages that sort of stop us from the theological reflection and say, all right, now let's press this into your lives. And Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4, is the first of those passages, the first word of exhortation, the first place where this truth gets pressed into our lives. Because Jesus the Son is better than angels, you and I need to listen to the message of salvation. And so listen as I read from the Word of God. This is Hebrews chapter 2. I'll read the first four verses. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Let's bow in prayer that, as I pray that God would use his word to change our lives. Father in heaven, we thank you that your message of salvation, your announcement of good news, comes to us, that we're not left in doubt or with questions, but we find answers in your word. God, for those who today are seeking truth, I pray that they would find it in Jesus the Savior, Jesus who is the full revelation of who you are, the radiance of your glory, the exact representation of your being. Lord, I pray that we would understand who Jesus Christ is. Lord, your word today comes with a warning to us, to each one of us who hears it. Lord, don't let us ignore this warning or shrug it aside. Lord, let each one of us feel the full weight of your truth. Lord, that we would only find forgiveness and hope. We would only find comfort in Jesus Christ alone. We wouldn't turn to the things of this world. We wouldn't turn to ourselves for, for hope. But we would turn away from ourselves to Jesus Christ who is our Savior. Father in heaven, help the, the reading and now the preaching of your word to change our lives, not because of the, the influence of the preacher, but because of the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, you are the God who is active. Your word is powerful. So we come today expecting you to change us. We come today praying in the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus who is our Savior. Amen. Clayton Hutton works at his uncle's sawmill, the lumber mill, when he hears Harry Houdini's challenge that Houdini will give 100 pounds to anyone who can construct a box from which Houdini cannot escape. Now, Houdini, of course, is the world-famous escape artist and stage performer. And so Clayton responds to Houdini's challenge with a letter. He writes to him, When you were previously in Birmingham, you escaped from a packing case. But as the case was delivered two days ahead, you had ample time to tamper with it. And so he lays out a plan, a plan which will be publicity for his uncle's lumber mill. We will select the finest woods and bring our master craftsmen on stage to construct the box live in front of the audience. Let the audience check the box. There will be no opportunity for Houdini to tamper with it. We'll put Houdini inside. The master carpenter will nail him in, and then we will get our 100 pounds. Now, Houdini accepted the challenge on 
one condition, that he would be given the opportunity to come and visit the lumber mill beforehand. Now, in the moment of the, of the show, the, the, the dramatic music swells, the carpenter builds the, the set, builds the box, the, the 20 audience members are, are brought up at random to check the box. Houdini is then handcuffed, placed inside a sack, dropped into the box, nailed shut into the box. The box is tied with ropes, and then the curtain comes down, and, and the music plays. And of course, when the curtain rises, well, you already know what happens because you paid money to come see Houdini escape from a box. You didn't pay money to see Houdini inside a box. And so when the curtain rises, Houdini is, of course, standing triumphantly center stage, the handcuffs hanging from one wrist, covered in perspiration but standing outside a completely intact box. Now, Clayton Hutton didn't discover the secret of the escape until years later. He ran into Houdini again on another tour. Houdini stepping out even into the, the, the heat of summer in his fur-lined coat, just showing off his extravagance and showmanship, but pulled him inside and explained it to him. Of course, that condition of visiting the lumberyard. It was part of the publicity. They put up a giant poster. The press was there to greet Houdini. But it also let Houdini meet the master carpenter. And instead of having to pay a 100 pounds reward, Houdini paid the master carpenter three pounds to use these short nails in the end of one of the boxes, which would make it easy for Houdini to kick himself out and with a hidden hammer, replace the small nails with full-size nails so that he was standing outside a full box. Now, an escape artist, of course, is expected to display his success on stage. And Houdini was the type of artist who made every escape seem possible. But the author of Hebrews warns us of the impossibility of our escape from punishment. Look at the rhetorical question that's pressed upon us in verse 3. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? And of course, the answer is, well, you won't. You can't. There is no possibility of escape for you. Escape will be impossible without help from someone on the outside. Hebrews 2 is a warning to us that escape is impossible, that you will not be able to rescue yourself. You will not be able to fix the problem of your sin and brokenness. You will not be able to restore what has gone wrong in the world, that if you ignore the salvation that is being announced, your escape is impossible. Because the argument that, that the, the author of Hebrews makes to us is that if the message spoken by angels in the past, remember, he's been building this contrast, which seemed arbitrary to us when we first read it. Wait, why do we care about angels again? Oh, because the greatness of angels shows us the greater greatness of Jesus, his supremacy. He, Jesus is better even than angels. But, but here, the, the truth is now pressed. If the message the angels announced in the Old Testament that God was entering into a covenant with his people, that God expected obedience to his law. Having rescued his people, God was now calling them to himself. 
God, the, the, the message of the Old Testament was never that if you do good things, you will be saved. It's because you have been saved, now respond to God in obedience. But if those who disobeyed that message received just punishment, how much greater will the punishment be for those who receive the message of salvation from Jesus? If an angelic messenger brings a message that has enough validity to condemn you to hell in your disobedience, then how much greater will the punishment be for those who ignore the message brought by Jesus. If Jesus is better than angels, then the message he brings is better than them, which means if they could not escape ignoring the Old Testament message, how do you think you could possibly escape ignoring his message today? The just punishment that comes on each one of us is that we deserve punishment for our sins. See, the claim in, in chapter one that Jesus was greater than angels was not a mere theological proclamation. It wasn't just for us to sort of check off, okay, I get it, I, I understand where Jesus is in the order of existence. No, it was to press this truth into our lives. Now, if you ignore what Jesus says, the punishment that falls upon you is a punishment that you deserve. The warning is clear in, in chapter two. It, it even builds with a therefore. Based on everything we've learned about the greatness of Jesus, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. The theological truth that Jesus is greater, that Jesus is better than angels, should lead to this practical truth that we have to pay attention to the message that we've been, we've been taught. Hebrews is this word of exhortation filled with practical insight for us. If they were punished in the Old Testament for disobeying a message mediated by angels, why would we think that we could escape punishment when the message comes to us directly from the Son of God. The danger is even more serious for us because of the greatness of the Son. Now, when a, when a sibling is tasked with passing along a message from a parent, he or she might simply share, it's time for dinner. But if they don't get the response of movement toward the dinner table, what will they add? Mom says it's time for dinner, right? Because they know as a sibling, I, you know, who are you to tell me what to do? I mean, yeah, there's a rivalry that you may have established, some sort of dominance in your household where you can be the sibling who tells everyone what to do, but really they're not gonna listen to you. So you come with a message that mom says it's time to come for dinner, and then what happens if there's still no movement? Mom comes to tell you it's time for dinner, and now there might actually be some real consequences for refusing to heed the, the announcement. If the angels came and said, salvation is here, and you ignore the angels, if the angels then repeat the message over and over again, at many times and in various ways, God says salvation is here, and you ignore the message, what happens when God himself, the Son of God, shows up and says salvation is here, and you ignore the message? Well, now you're in real trouble. Because the warning here is that, that not only that we pay more careful attention, we, it's, it's we pay more careful attention, look at verse one, so that we do not drift away. The image is understandable still for us today of a ship out at sea now lacking the power to move, a ship with its anchor torn away, a ship with its rudder immobile, now just drifting 
where the tides and the currents will push it. Of course, to someone in port, this will look like a ship that's completely ignoring any navigation warnings, ignoring any, any of the contours of the, the harbor. It's, it's moving toward peril, toward shallow seas, or even if it's being pushed out to sea, it will now be at the mercy of the waves, unable to, to navigate or protect itself in storms. And the warning here isn't, it's not hypothetical. It's not as if, well, we know this won't really happen to you, but, but just in case you know, it ever could, let me give you a warning. No, the, right here at the very beginning, we've, we've only made this, this one great theological truth that Jesus is better than angels, and the preacher has to already stop and say, did you hear what I just said? Are you listening carefully? You and I must pay careful attention that we do not drift away because the danger of drifting away is real and it's present right now. Maybe you're a student who has heard the message of the gospel, even from childhood, but you're now thinking, well, I don't know. Does it really matter? I had another more experienced pastor tell me this week that in, that in his church, the, the biggest danger that, that his leaders see, the, the most dangerous time in a Christian's life is when he or she leaves their home for work or college. That transition from being under the oversight of your parents to now sort of having to make all the decisions on your own. That that's a time in which without the things that tethered you to the truth previously, the, perhaps the pattern of worship attendance that was forced upon you, perhaps the patterns of family worship that your parents made sure you heard the word of God, that the now cast adrift, you merely float away. And I, I think that danger is seen more broadly in our culture, not just in, in the one church locally where the pastor was concerned. But there comes a time when we are at great risk well, because it's, it's just easy to drift. How much work does it take to start drifting? I mean, none at all. That's part of the danger, right? I mean, it was a pretty busy Saturday night. I am not getting up for a Sunday morning service. And maybe it's not even through the, the bad decisions you make. Maybe it's even the good decisions that you're, you're studying hard, you're working a job, you're, you're pressing the, the limits of what you can accomplish, and you think, well, I just can't squeeze God in this week. And so you begin to drift away. It becomes easy to drift because drifting takes well, almost no work at all. Or maybe the danger for you is, is the, the struggle that you feel like you're disconnected from church. I've had lots of conversations through the years with, with, with people that are well-connected here at Faith who will come to me and say, I, you know, I just don't feel as close to God as I did before. I just don't feel like I have the strength of relationships in the church anymore. I feel like I'm further away. Now, of course, there are times when the problem will reside in us, the church, that we have been, as leaders, the reason for the disconnect. But often, when I ask the follow-up questions about why do you feel disconnected, when I say, well, how have things been going for you in your community group? What, teach, tell me something you've learned recently in Sunday school. Well, I mean, you already can give me the answer, right? 
well, you know, things got kind of busy, and so I, you know, I, well, I haven't been to community group at all this year. I mean, I, 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 mean, I was there in the spring, but I, you know, the fall, my, it just didn't, it, and, you know, Sunday school, it doesn't, it doesn't really work. And so I feel disconnected because, well, I am disconnected. And it wasn't a plan. You didn't sit down and say, how could I be less involved at church this year? It just, well, you just sort of drifted into it. And so you feel disconnected because you're drifting away. Or maybe it actually is a more intentional decision that you've made. That you've actually thought, wait, (laughs) this whole Christianity thing is way too restrictive. I mean, the expectations that God has on me are too much. How could God expect anyone to live a life of sexual purity in our culture? Now, of course, we understand that we're not saved because we obey God. I mean, I need to make this point clear. We are saved by God's grace, but we are saved so that our lives could be changed. And it means we don't really measure our lives then based on the standards of our culture. We base our lives upon the word of God. But that means you're constantly under pressure as a Christian. Because what the word of God teaches you and what your culture teaches you are not always the same thing. And maybe you feel that divide increasingly today that what you're taught in the Word of God and what you're taught in the world don't match up at all. And and so it becomes easy to say, well, that's a lot of pressure to keep maintaining the truth of God and the standards of God in a culture that says that that's nonsense. And so you don't make a quick decision to just turn your back on God. It just sort of happens. You just start to make decisions where you say, "I, I don't know, I think that's fine. I mean, it's everyone's favorite show, so of course I had to watch it. It's, I mean, everyone is doing it, which must mean it's okay. And you slowly drift away. As your moral standards align with the culture, you find yourself further from God. Now, perhaps you're sitting here nodding along with me and saying, I am so glad that so-and-so is here to hear today's sermon. Or you're thinking, I need to make sure I pass this sermon on to so-and-so. Because there's somebody in your life that you're thinking, they're in danger of this happening to them, but not me. I am fully committed. I am here every time the doors are open. I'm actually the guy with the key who unlocks the doors to make sure everybody else is ready to go. I am here for God. But maybe even as someone still connected to the church, so that you think you're not at risk of drifting away, well, maybe you and I still need to hear the warning. Because maybe we're not at risk of drifting away by isolating ourselves from our community group. I mean, we're, I mean, we're, that, that's an obvious drifting away. I mean, that's measurable. Other people will see it. But you know what? I can show up at community group without really expecting the word of God to change my life. I can go because, well, I'm expected to be there. And actually, I can fill my head with greater spiritual knowledge. I could study the passage in advance beforehand to make sure that when I show up and we open the Word of God, I will know every answer to every question that's there. But the answers are actually keeping me further away from God. Because if I can just keep intellectual control of what's happening, even if I can show my intellectual superiority of how much I've learned theologically, then actually that insulates us from the truth of God being pressed into our lives. 
And so outwardly, you look like you're fully committed. People might even say, hey, could you lead next week? And you're ready to say, sure. I can parse every word. I can give you the historical background. I can even tell you how you should apply it in your life. All the while, we, maybe without even noticing it, aren't willing to apply the truth of God to our own hearts. Jim Brown, my predecessor, a senior pastor at Faith, asked me this week when he got back from, from his vacation, he said, what is God teaching you from the book of Hebrews? I thought, that's not the right question. The right question is, what am I teaching you from the book of Hebrews? But of course, it is the pastorally incisive question, isn't it? Because if God isn't teaching me from Hebrews, well, then you might accidentally learn something because the Holy Spirit is more powerful than Kevin is. All right, you probably have figured that out by now. So that God will teach you even despite self-isolated preaching sometimes. But that's a much greater question. What is God teaching you, preacher, from the book of Hebrews? Maybe you and I need to, to ask those kinds of questions. For the message spoken by angels was binding in every violation and disobedience received its just punishment. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? The warning is for each Christian. For those who are drifting away when their departure is visible, we can see the ship heading toward the rocks, and we might even be standing trying to scream and, 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 and provide help to the one drifting away. But the warning comes to those of us who, who don't look like we're drifting away outwardly, but in our own hearts, we feel the distance and departure from the message of God. This warning is serious. Judgment is real. The warning of the Old Testament, the warnings of the Old Testament are even greater for us because of the greatness of the Son. If the message of angels was binding on people's consciences, then the message of the Son is binding on us. And thankfully, this, even the question itself contains hope for us. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? I mean, the question has the answer in it, right? If you don't ignore, but you listen to, if you receive the message of great salvation, if you cling to Christ, then you will be rescued. And that's the, the hope that's offered to us in this great salvation. That if we if we heed the warning, then there is hope. On our own, we won't. We will drift away. If left to our own devices, we will turn from God. But great salvation has been announced to us. Now, notice in the passage that the angels announce a message, verse 2. If the message spoken by angels was binding. But what does Christ announce to us? Salvation. We actually given the content of the message. There's this, it's just a message. But what is Christ spoken? Salvation is spoken to us. A great salvation for us. And it's announced, verse 3 tells us, was first announced to us by the Lord, by Jesus himself. He's the one who in his appearance, in the revelation of God, in his arrival, brings salvation for us. The angels are merely messengers. Because angels are are, are between, in the sort of the pantheon of, of, of being, they're between God and man, greater than man but less than God. They're creatures like man, but they're supernatural like God. But angels are neither God nor man. And so their message is a message merely announced to us 
But who is Jesus? He is God. That's what we've heard in Hebrews 1. He is the Son of God, who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of God's being. At his, at, at, at his essence, he is God. And yet he is also the Son of God who became a man and who provided purification for our sins, we saw in chapter 1. Jesus is God and man, the true mediator, the only one who could bring salvation. Angels could talk about salvation, but they can't supply salvation. Jesus not only talks about salvation, he is our salvation. Because he's the one who came, not merely as a messenger, he came as our savior. He gave his life for us on the cross. The son of God, the true mediator, dying in our place. The, the son of God, powerful enough to bear the weight of your sin and mine, so that when we turn to him, if we don't ignore this salvation, but we hear it, then we have hope. See, he's our only hope of rescue. We could not escape ourselves. We are trapped because of our sins. And notice how this, this passage sets up sin for us. Of course, we know that sin is, in a positive sense, a rebellion against God. It's turning away from God. It's, it's, it's not trusting in the truth of who God is. It's doing what we want to do. It's disobeying the commands of God. But notice here that that negatively, sin is a loss of faith in Christ. It's the drifting away. That's not merely something that happens to you. It's a choice you make. It, of course, yes, the image of the ship. It's something that happens to the ship. But morally and spiritually, you and I are responsible when we drift away. Because while the choices we make to stop trusting in God's word might be small, they might happen gradually, the consequences are huge because we're, we're saying to the God of the universe, I don't believe you. I don't trust that your word really matters for me. I don't believe that what you have for me is really what's best. Each, each decision in the drifting away is something we willingly, consciously, purposefully do. To yield to the temptation to drift away is to abandon the profession of faith that these believers have made. And if you abandon your profession of faith, then your plight is hopeless. You are trapped in your sin and you will not escape. And yet salvation is announced to us by the Lord himself. We're told that this message is then confirmed to us by those who heard it. The, the apostles they heard the teaching of Jesus. There were many witnesses. We have confirmation of their message because verse 4 tells us God has also testified to the truth of this salvation. How? Through the miracles and the signs and the wonders done in the apostolic age. They were showing up and saying, God has said salvation is here. And so that you know that I'm just not making this up, but that God really said, well, let me tell you, stand up and walk. Receive your sight. The miraculous signs are God's testimony to the truth of this salvation message. And we receive then the gifts of God's Holy Spirit, verse 4 tells us, distributed according to his will. They're his gifts at work in the church. And those were not merely in the past. They are for us today. And so the confirming testimony of the people gathered around you, that them using their gifts in the service of Christ and his kingdom is a reminder to you that this message is real. God has changed the people around you. 
They were trapped in sin, but they have been set free. They have been rescued. The, the author is saying there is an unrelenting succession of evangelistic witness. That's a phrase of, one of, the, uh, of a commentator I read this week. That there's this, this succession of evangelistic witness that goes from Christ to the apostles to the witness of the church, which has then been brought to you. You are hearing this message from Christ because it was written down by Christ, empowered by his spirit, that you might hear it today. And so don't ignore the salvation today. If you feel a discomfort in hearing this, that might be a good thing today. If you feel a weight of guilt on you that then maybe the decisions I've made have consequences. Maybe I'm responsible for the, the drifting that I feel in my life. Well, then that guilt can be a good thing. If it turns you not inwardly on yourself to find some sort of solution of a way you can solve this problem, if it, if it doesn't turn you toward, toward your own ideas of righteousness that, that okay, God, I'll fix it. I'll, I'll make myself better. See, the, the guilt, the shame that you feel, the discomfort that you hear with a warning like this that comes in Scripture can be a good thing if it turns you away from yourself toward the source of salvation. The, the warning wasn't hypothetical. It, it's real. The warning is for you right now. But neither is the salvation. It's not a, well, hopefully God will someday figure this out and do something about it. No, no. This is a great salvation which was first announced to us by the Lord himself. And so turn from your sin. Put your trust in him. If you feel like you've, you've drifted, then throw out the anchor and, and, and let it cling to Christ. Stop drifting away. Houdini was a showman. He wrestled his way out of the box. He had hidden a... A, a, a razor so that he could cut himself out of the sack that they put him into. He, of course, was a master with, with handcuffs, and so it didn't matter what kind of handcuffs you put him in, he would get himself out. But even Houdini needed help from the outside to escape this box. Because, of course, there's a box you can put Houdini in that he won't get out of, right? You and I need help. But the rescue isn't going to be through your own effort. You won't be left standing on stage in perspiration showing that, look at what I have done. No, when you stand on the stage, you're not in the spotlight. The one who stands at center stage when the curtain is lifted is the Savior himself. The Savior who was covered in blood for you. So that you, through no effort of your own, but merely by throwing yourself upon the mercy of God, would find salvation in Jesus Christ. It's the Son of God who frees us, not by a showman's trick, not by short nails that are easily kicked out, but by long nails that held him to the cross, by his perfect sacrifice. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? Salvation is here. We must no longer drift. Anchor yourself to Jesus. Let me pray. Father, for those that feel discomfort at your words, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be relentless 
impressing guilt and shame upon those who hear your word so that they would turn from guilt, that they would turn from shame and find forgiveness and rescue and restoration in Jesus Christ. Lord, for those of us that, that, that see the risk of drifting away, Lord, change our hearts that we might cling to Jesus. Lord, where we see it in a brother or sister in Christ, Lord, give us the boldness but also the gentleness to come alongside and to point our brothers and sisters, even as we've heard from your word today, to point them back to Jesus. Lord, our salvation is, is not found in us. It's found in Jesus Christ alone. So, Father in heaven, we come giving you praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.